Chapter 7 of Emily of New Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Heather McLennan. Emily of New Moon by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 7 The Book of Yesterday. That first Saturday and Sunday at New Moon always stood out in Emily's memory as a very wonderful time. So crowded was it with new and generally delightful impressions. If it be true that we count time by heartthrobs, Emily lived two years in it instead of two days. Everything was fascinating from the moment she came down the long, polished staircase into the square hall that was filled with a soft, rosy light coming through the red glass panes of the front door. Emily gazed through the panes delightedly. What a strange, fascinating red world she beheld, with a weird red sky that looked, she thought, as if it belonged to the Day of Judgment. There was a certain charm about the old house which Emily felt keenly and responded to, although she was too young to understand it. It was a house which aforetime had had vivid brides and mothers and wives, and the atmosphere of their loves and lives still hung around it, not yet banished by the old maidishness of the regime of Elizabeth and Laura. Why, I'm going to love New Moon, thought Emily, quite amazed at the idea. Aunt Laura was setting the breakfast table in the kitchen, which seemed quite bright and jolly in the glow of morning sunshine. Even the black hole in the ceiling had ceased to be spookish and become only a commonplace entrance to the kitchen loft. And on the red sandstone doorstep, Saucy Sal was sitting, preening her fur, as contentedly as if she had lived at New Moon all her life. Emily did not know it, but Sal had already drunk deep the delight of battle with her peers that morning and taught the barn cats their place once and for all. Cousin Jimmy's big yellow tom had got a fearful drubbing and was minus several bits of his anatomy while a stuck-up black lady cat who fancied herself considerably had made up her mind that if that grey-and-white narrow-faced interloper from goodness knew where was going to stay at new moon she was not emily gathered sal up in her arms and kissed her joyously to the horror of aunt elizabeth who was coming across the platform from the cookhouse with a plate of sizzling bacon in her hands don't ever let me see you kissing a cat again she ordered. Oh, all right, agreed Emily cheerfully. I'll only kiss her when you don't see me after this. I don't want any of your pertness, miss. You're not to kiss cats at all. But, Aunt Elizabeth, I didn't kiss her on the mouth, of course. I just kissed her between her ears. It's nice. Won't you just try it for once and see for yourself? That will do, Emily. You've said quite enough and Aunt Elizabeth sailed on into the kitchen majestically, leaving Emily momentarily wretched. She felt that she had offended Aunt Elizabeth, and she hadn't the least notion why or how. But the scene before her was too interesting to worry long over Aunt Elizabeth. Delicious smells were coming from the cookhouse, a little slant-roofed building at the corner where the big cooking stove was placed in summer. It was thickly overgrown with hop vines, as most of the new moon buildings were. To the right was the new orchard, very wonderful now in blossom, but a rather commonplace spot after all, since Cousin Jimmy cultivated it in most up-to-date fashion and had grain growing in the wide spaces between the straight rows of trees that looked all alike, 
But on the other side of the barn lane, just behind the well, was the old orchard, where Cousin Jimmy said the columbines grew, and which seemed to be a delightful place where trees had come up at their own sweet will and grown into individual shapes and sizes, where blue-eyed ivy twined about their roots and wild briar roses rioted over the gray paling fence. Straight ahead, closing the vista between the orchards, was a little slope covered with huge white birches, among which were the big new moon barns, and beyond the new orchard a little lovable red road looped lightly up and up over a hill until it seemed to touch the vivid blue of the sky. Cousin Jimmy came down from the barns carrying brimming pails of milk, and Emily ran with him to the dairy behind the cookhouse. Such a delightful spot she had never seen nor imagined. It was a snow-white little building in a clump of tall balm of gileads. Its gray roof was dotted over with cushions of moss like fat green velvet mice. You went down six sandstone steps with ferns crowding about them and opened a white door with a glass panel in it and went down three more steps. And then you were in a clean, earthy-smelling, damp, cool place with an earthen floor and windows screened by the delicate emerald of young hop vines and broad wooden shelves all around whereon stood wide, shallow pans of glossy brown ware, full of milk, coated over with cream, so rich it was positively yellow. Aunt Laura was waiting for them, and she strained the milk into empty pans and then skimmed some of the full ones. Emily thought skimming was a lovely occupation and longed to try her hand at it. She also longed to sit right down and write a description of that dear dairy, but alas, there was no account book. Still, she could write it in her head. She squatted down on a little three-legged stool in a dim corner and proceeded to do it, sitting so still that Jimmy and Laura forgot her and went away and later had to hunt for her a quarter of an hour. This delayed breakfast and made Aunt Elizabeth very cross. But Emily had found just the right sentence to define the clear yet dim green light that filled the dairy and was so happy over it that she didn't mind Aunt Elizabeth's black looks a bit. After breakfast, Aunt Elizabeth informed Emily that henceforth it would be one of her duties to drive the cows to pasture every morning. Jimmy has no hired man just now, and it will save him a few minutes. And don't be afraid, added Aunt Laura. The cows know the way so well, they'll go of themselves. You only have to follow and shut the gates. I'm not afraid, said Emily. But she was. She knew nothing about cows. Still, she was determined that the Murrays should not suspect a star was scared. So her heart beating like a trip hammer, she sallied valiantly forth and found that what Aunt Laura had said was true, and cows were not such ferocious animals after all. They went gravely on ahead, and she only had to follow, through the old orchard and then through the scrub maple growth beyond, along a twisted ferny path where the wind woman was purring and peeping around the maple clumps. Emily loitered by the pasture gate until her eager eyes had taken in all the geography of the landscape. The old pasture ran before her in a succession of little green bosoms right down to the famous Blair Water, an almost perfectly round pond with grassy sloping treeless margins. Beyond it was the Blair Water Valley filled with homesteads, and further out the great sweep of the white-capped gulf. It seemed to Emily's eyes a charming land of green shadows and blue waters. 
Down in one corner of the pasture, walled off by an old stone dyke, was the little private graveyard where the dead and gone Murrays were buried. Emily wanted to go and explore it, but was afraid to trust herself in the pasture. I'll go as soon as I get better acquainted with the cows, she resolved. Off to the right, on the crest of a steep little hill covered with young birches and firs, was a house that puzzled and intrigued Emily. It was grey and weather-worn, but it didn't look old. It had never been finished. The roof was shingled, but the sides were not, and the windows were boarded over. Why had it never been finished? And it was meant to be such a pretty little house, a house you could love, a house where there would be nice chairs and cozy fires and bookcases and lovely fat, purry cats and unexpected corners. Then and there she named it the disappointed house, and many an hour thereafter did she spend finishing that house, furnishing it as it should be furnished, and inventing the proper people and animals to live in it. To the left of the pasture field was another house of a quite different type, a big old house tangled over with vines, flat-roofed with mansard windows, and a general air of indifference and neglect about it. A large, untidy lawn, overgrown with unpruned shrubs and trees, straggled right down to the pond, where enormous willows drooped over the water. Emily decided that she would ask Cousin Jimmy about these houses when she got a good chance. She felt that before she went back, she must slip along the pasture fence and explore a certain path, which she saw entering the grove of spruce and maple further down. She did, and found that it led straight into fairyland, along the bank of a wide, lovely brook, a wild, dear little path with lady ferns beckoning and blowing along it, the shyest of elfin June bells under the firs, and little whims of loveliness at every curve. She breathed in the tang of fir balsam and saw the shimmer of gossamers high up in the boughs, and everywhere the frolic of elfin light and shadows. Here and there the young maple branches interlaced, as if to make a screen for dryad faces. Emily knew all about dryads, thanks to her father. And the great sheets of moss under the trees were meat for Titania's couch. This is one of the places where dreams grow, said Emily happily. She wished the path might go on forever, but presently it veered away from the brook. And when she had scrambled over a mossy old board fence, she found herself in the front garden of New Moon, where Cousin Jimmy was pruning some spirea bushes. Oh, Cousin Jimmy, I've found the dearest little road, said Emily breathlessly. Coming up through Lofty John's bush? Isn't it our bush? asked Emily, rather disappointed. No, but it ought to be. Fifty years ago, Uncle Archibald sold that jug of land to Lofty John's father, old Mike Sullivan. He built a little house down near the pond and lived there till he quarreled with Uncle Archibald, which wasn't long, of course. Then he moved his house across the road, and Lofty John lives there now. Elizabeth has tried to buy the land back from him. She's offered him far more than it's worth, but Lofty John won't sell, just for spite. Seeing that he has a good farm of his own, and this piece isn't much good to him, he only pastures a few young cattle on it through the summer, and what was cleared is all growing up with scrub maple. It's a thorn in Elizabeth's side, and likely to be as long as Lofty John nurses his spite. Why is he called Lofty John? Because he's a high and lofty fellow. But never mind him. I want to show you round my garden, Emily. 
It's mine. Elizabeth bosses the farm, but she lets me run the garden to make up for pushing me into the well. Did she do that? Yes, she didn't mean to, of course. We were just children. I was here on a visit, and the men were putting a new hood on the well and cleaning it. It was open, and we were playing tag around it. I made Elizabeth mad. Forget what I said. Twasn't hard to make her mad, you understand. And she made to give me a bang on the head. I saw it coming and stepped back to get out of the way, and down I went, head first. Don't remember anything more about it. There was nothing but mud at the bottom, but my head struck the stones at the side. I was took up for dead, my head all cut up. Poor Elizabeth was... Cousin Jimmy shook his head as if to intimate that it was impossible to describe how or what poor Elizabeth was. I got about after a while, though, pretty near good as new. Folks say I've never been quite right since, but they only say that because I'm a poet and because nothing ever worries me. Poets are so scarce in Blair Water, folks don't understand them, and most people worry so much they think you're not right if you don't worry. Won't you recite some of your poetry to me, Cousin Jimmy? asked Emily eagerly. When the spirit moves me, I will. It's no use to ask me when the spirit doesn't move me. But how am I to know when the spirit moves you, Cousin Jimmy? I'll begin of my own accord to recite my compositions. But I'll tell you this, the spirit generally moves me when I'm boiling the pig's potatoes in the fall. Remember that and be around. Why don't you write your poetry down? Paper's too scarce at New Moon. Elizabeth has some pet economies, and writing paper of any kind is one of them. But haven't you any money of your own, Cousin Jimmy? Oh, Elizabeth pays me good wages, but she puts all my money in the bank and just doles out a few dollars to me once in a while. She says I'm not fit to be trusted with money. When I came here to work for her, she paid me my wages at the end of the month, and I started for Shrewsbury to put it in the bank. Met a tramp on the road, a poor forlorn creature without a cent. I gave him the money. Why not? I had a good home and a steady job and clothes enough to do me for years. I suppose it was the foolishest thing I ever did, and the nicest. But Elizabeth never got over it. She's managed my money ever since. But come you now, and I'll show you my garden before I have to go and sow turnips. The garden was a beautiful place, well worthy Cousin Jimmy's pride. It seemed like a garden where no frost could wither or rough winds blow, a garden remembering a hundred vanished summers. There was a high hedge of clipped spruce all around it, spaced at intervals by tall Lombardies. The north side was closed in by a thick grove of spruce, against which a long row of peonies grew, their great red blossoms splendid against its darkness. One big spruce grew in the center of the garden, and underneath it was a stone bench made of flat shore stones worn smooth by long polish of wind and wave. In the southeast corner was an enormous clump of lilacs trimmed into the semblance of one large drooping bowed tree, gloried over with purple. An old summer house covered with vines filled the southwest corner, and in the northwest corner there was a sundial of grey stone, placed just where the broad red walk that was bordered with striped grass and picked out with pink conches, ran off into Lofty John's bush. Emily had never seen a sundial before and hung over it, enraptured. Your great-great-grandfather Hugh Murray had that brought out from the old country, said Cousin Jimmy. There isn't as fine a one in the maritime provinces. 
and Uncle George Murray brought those conches from the Indies. He was a sea captain. Emily looked about her with delight. The garden was lovely, and the house quite splendid to her childish eyes. It had a big front porch with Grecian columns. These were thought very elegant in Blair Water, and went far to justify the Murray pride. A schoolmaster had said they gave the house a classical air. To be sure, the classical effect was just now rather smothered in hop vines that rioted over the whole porch and hung in pale green festoons above the rows of potted scarlet geraniums that flanked the steps. Emily's heart swelled with pride. It's a noble house, she said. And what about my garden? demanded Cousin Jimmy jealously. It's fit for a queen, said Emily gravely and sincerely. Cousin Jimmy nodded, well pleased, and then a strange sound crept into his voice and an odd look into his eyes. There is a spell woven round this garden. The blight shall spare it, and the green worm pass it by. Drought dares not invade it, and the rain comes here gently. Emily took an involuntary step backwards. She almost felt like running away. But now Cousin Jimmy was himself again. Isn't this grass about the sundial like green velvet? I've taken some pains with it, I can tell you. You make yourself at home in this garden. Cousin Jimmy made a splendid gesture. I confer the freedom of it upon you. Good luck to you, and may you find the lost diamond. The lost diamond, said Emily wonderingly. What fascinating thing was this? Never hear the story? I'll tell it tomorrow. Sunday's lazy day at new moon. I must get off to my turnips now or I'll have Elizabeth out looking at me. She won't say anything. She'll just look. Ever seen the real Murray look? I guess I saw it when Aunt Ruth pulled me out from under the table, said Emily ruefully. No, no, that was the Ruth Dutton look. Spite and malice and all uncharitableness. I hate Ruth Dutton. She laughs at my poetry. Not that she ever hears any of it. The spirit never moves when Ruth is round. Don't know where they got her. Elizabeth is a crank, but she's sound as a nut, and Laura's a saint, but Ruth's worm-eaten. As for the Murray look, you'll know it when you see it. It's as well known as the Murray pride. We're a darn queer lot, but we're the finest people ever happened. I'll tell you all about us tomorrow. Cousin Jimmy kept his promise while the aunts were away at church. It had been decided in the family conclave that Emily was not to go to church that day. She has nothing suitable to wear, said Aunt Elizabeth. By next Sunday we will have her white dress ready. Emily was disappointed that she was not to go to church. She had always found church very interesting on the rare occasions when she got there. It had been too far at Maywood for her father to walk, but sometimes Ellen Green's brother had taken her and Ellen. Do you think, Aunt Elizabeth, she said wistfully, that God would be much offended if I wore my black dress to church? Of course it's cheap. I think Ellen Green paid for it herself, but it covers me all up. Little girls who do not understand things should hold their tongues, said Aunt Elizabeth. I do not choose that Blairwater people should see my niece in such a dress as that wretched black merino. And if Ellen Green paid for it, then we must repay her. You should have told us that before we came away from Maywood. No, you are not going to church today. You can wear the black dress to school tomorrow. We can cover it up with an apron. Emily resigned herself with a sigh of disappointment to staying home. But it was very pleasant after all. 
Cousin Jimmy took her for a walk to the pond, showed her the graveyard, and opened the book of yesterday for her. Why are all the Murrays buried here? asked Emily. Is it really because they're too good to be buried with common people? No, 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 pussy. We don't carry our pride as far as that. When old Hugh Murray settled at New Moon, there was nothing much but woods for miles and no graveyards nearer than Charlottetown. That's why the old Murrays were buried here. And later on, we kept it up because we wanted to lie with our own here on the green, green banks of the old Blair Water. That sounds like a line out of a poem, Cousin Jimmy, said Emily. So it is, out of one of my poems. I kind of like the idea of exclusive burying ground like this, said Emily decidedly, looking around her approvingly at the velvet grass sloping down to the fairy blue pond, the neat walks, the well-kept graves. Cousin Jimmy chuckled. And yet they say you ain't a Murray, he said. Murray and bird and star and a dash of Shipley to boot, or Cousin Jimmy Murray is much mistaken. Shipley? Yes, Hugh Murray's wife, your great-great-grandmother, was a Shipley, an Englishwoman. Ever hear of how the Murrays came to New Moon? No. They were bound for Quebec, hadn't any notion of coming to PEI. They had a long, rough voyage, and water got scarce, so the captain of the New Moon put in here to get some. Mary Murray had nearly died of seasickness coming out, never seemed to get her sea legs, so the captain, being sorry for her, told her she could go ashore with the men and feel solid ground under her for an hour or so. Very gladly she went, and when she got to shore, she said, Here I stay. And stay she did. Nothing could budge her. Old Hugh, he was young Hugh then, of course, coaxed and stormed and raged and argued and even cried, I've been told. But Mary wouldn't be moved. In the end, he gave in and had his belongings landed and stayed too. So that is how the Murrays came to P.E. Island. I'm glad it happened like that, said Emily. So was Hugh in the long run. And yet it rankled, Emily, it rankled. He never forgave his wife with a whole heart. Her grave is over there in the corner, that one with a flat red stone. Go you and look at what he had put on it. Emily ran curiously over. The big flat stone was inscribed with one of the long discursive epitaphs of an older day. But beneath the epitaph was no scriptural verse or pious psalm. Clear and distinct, in spite of age and lichen, ran the line, Here I stay. That's how he got even with her, said Cousin Jimmy. He was a good husband to her, and she was a good wife and bore him a fine family, and he never was the same after her death. But that rankled in him until it had to come out. Emily gave a little shiver. Somehow the idea of that grim old ancestor with his undying grudge against his nearest and dearest was rather terrifying. I'm glad I'm only half Murray, she said to herself. Aloud, father told me it was a Murray tradition not to carry spite past the grave. So tis now, but it took its rise from this very thing. His family were so horrified at it, you see. It made considerable of a scandal. Some folks twisted it round to mean that old Hugh didn't believe in the resurrection, and there was talk of the session taking it up. But after a while, the talk died away. Emily skipped over to another lichen-grown stone. Elizabeth Burnley. Who was she, Cousin Jimmy? Old William Murray's wife. He was Hugh's brother and came out here five years after Hugh did. 
His wife was a great beauty and had been a belle in the old country. She didn't like the P.E. Island woods. She was homesick, Emily. Scandalous homesick. For weeks after she came here, she wouldn't take off her bonnet. Just walked the floor in it, demanding to be taken home. Didn't she take it off when she went to bed? Asked Emily. Don't know if she did go to bed. Anyway, William wouldn't take her back home. So in time, she took off her bonnet and resigned herself. Her daughter married Hugh's son, so Elizabeth was your great-great-grandmother. Emily looked down at the sunken green grave and wondered if any homesick dreams haunted Elizabeth Burnley's slumber of a hundred years. It's dreadful to be homesick, I know, she thought sympathetically. Little Stephen Murray is buried over there, said Cousin Jimmy. His was the first marble stone in the burying ground. He was your grandfather's brother, died when he was twelve. He has said Cousin Jimmy solemnly, become a Murray tradition. Why? He was so beautiful and clever and good, he hadn't a fault, so of course he couldn't live. They say there never was such a handsome child in the connection. And lovable. Everybody loved him. He has been dead for 90 years. Not a Murray living today ever saw him. And yet we talk about him at family gatherings. He's more real than lots of living people. So you see, Emily, he must have been an extraordinary child. But it ended in that. Cousin Jimmy waved his hand towards the grassy grave and the white prim headstone. I wonder, thought Emily, if anyone will remember me 90 years after I'm dead. This old yard is nearly full, reflected Cousin Jimmy. There's just room in yonder corner for Elizabeth and Laura and me. None for you, Emily. I don't want to be buried here, flashed Emily. I think it's splendid to have a graveyard like this in the family, but I am going to be buried in Charlottetown graveyard with father and mother. But there's one thing worries me, Cousin Jimmy. Do you think I'm likely to die of consumption? Cousin Jimmy looked judicially down into her eyes. No, he said. No, Miss Puss, you've got enough life in you to carry you far. You aren't meant for death. I feel that too said Emily, nodding. And now, Cousin Jimmy, why is that house over there disappointed? Which one? Oh, Fred Clifford's house. Fred Clifford began to build that house 30 years ago. He was to be married, and his lady picked out the plan. And when the house was just as far along as you see, she jilted him, Emily. Right in the face of day, she jilted him. Never another nail was driven in the house. Fred went out to British Columbia. He's living there yet, married and happy. But he won't sell that lot to anyone, so I reckon he feels the sting yet. I'm so sorry for that house. I wish it had been finished. It wants to be, even yet it wants to be. Well, I reckon it never will. Fred had a bit of Shipley in him too, you see. One of old Hugh's girls was his grandmother. And Dr. Burnley up there in the big grey house has more than a bit. Is he a relation of ours too, Cousin Jimmy? Forty-second cousin. Way back, he had a cousin of Mary Shipley's for a great something. That was in the old country. His forebears came out here after we did. He's a good doctor, but an odd stick. Odder by far than I am, Emily, and yet nobody ever says he's not all there. Can you account for that? He doesn't believe in God, and I am not such a fool as that. Not in any God? Not in any God. He's an infidel, Emily, 
and he's bringing up his little girl the same way, which I think is a shame, Emily, said Cousin Jimmy confidentially. Doesn't her mother teach her things? Her mother is dead, answered Cousin Jimmy with a little odd hesitation. Dead these ten years, he added in a firmer tone. Ilsa Burnley is a great girl, hair like daffodils and eyes like yellow diamonds. Oh, Cousin Jimmy, you promised you'd tell me about the lost diamond, cried Emily eagerly. To be sure, to be sure. Well, it's there, somewhere, in or about the old summer house, Emily. Fifty years ago, Edward Murray and his wife came here from Kingsport for a visit. A great lady she was, and wearing silks and diamonds like a queen, though no beauty. She had a ring on with a stone in it that cost two hundred pounds, Emily. That was a big lot of money to be wearing on one wee woman finger, wasn't it? It sparkled on her white hand as she held her dress going up the steps of the summer house. But when she came down the steps, it was gone. And it was never found? asked Emily breathlessly. Never. And for no lack of searching. Edward Murray wanted to have the house pulled down, but Uncle Archibald wouldn't hear of it because he had built it for his bride. The two brothers quarreled over it and were never good friends again. Everybody in the connection has taken a spell hunting for the diamond. Most folks think it fell out of the summer house among the flowers or shrubs. But I know better, Emily. I know Miriam Murray's diamond is somewhere about that old house yet. On moonlight nights, Emily, I've seen it glinting, glinting and beckoning, but never in the same place. And when you go to it, it's gone, and you can see it laughing at you from somewhere else. Again, there was that eerie, indefinable something in Cousin Jimmy's voice or look that gave Emily a sudden crinkly feeling in her spine. But she loved the way he talked to her as if she were grown up and she loved the beautiful land around her. And in spite of the ache for her father and the house in the hollow, which persisted all the time and hurt her so much at night that her pillow was wet with secret tears, she was beginning to be a little glad again in sunset and birdsong and early white stars, in moonlit nights and singing winds. She knew life was going to be wonderful here, wonderful and interesting, what with outdoor cookhouses and cream-girdled dairies and pond paths and sundials and lost diamonds and disappointed houses and men who didn't believe in any god, not even Ellen Green's god. Emily hoped she would soon see Dr. Burnley. She was very curious to see what an infidel looked like, and she had already quite made up her mind that she would find the lost diamond. End of chapter 7